This is a work of fiction. Honest. Ragback presents Brollywood, episode 5. Written and performed by Frank Burton. The story you're listening to right now is being released as a book, by the way. It will also be called Brollywood. It's the third in the Ragback series, the first two being Everything I Am and Getting Away With It. Don't worry if you're not familiar with those books or the original podcast that spawned them. This is a good place to start. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting this show by buying several copies of all three books and giving them away to everyone you know, or just give one book to one person. That's a reasonable start. Let's get on with the story. We scheduled a Zoom conference for later that week. Benedict was back in the UK now. We had to arrange the call for a time when he could conveniently be apart from his family. Noddy and several other members of the community would be attending as well. I had no idea what I was supposed to make of any of this. I suppose I should have found it all quite stressful, but I couldn't take it seriously. The situation was too ludicrous for words. Nonetheless, it was happening. I was going to have a Zoom call with a man who didn't officially exist, plus several of his equally anonymous associates, plus Benedict from beneath a blanket in one of his spare bedrooms, or whatever cunning hiding spot he could devise by Wednesday. I planned to join the call from the back of the van, which was pretty much soundproof, just in case Uncle Claude happened to be earwigging. My number one priority was this. I needed to update Jamie as soon as possible. Just hearing his reaction would somehow make all this nonsense worthwhile. Unfortunately, he was working. Noddy had sent me a small homework task for the meeting, recreating Frank and Benedict's secret robbing diary. I was intimately familiar with the contents of that book, so this was an easy enough task. Luckily, I didn't need Benedict to jog my memory. Judging by the tone of his frequent texts, he was extremely concerned about our upcoming Zoom call. I'd have turned my phone off if I hadn't been waiting for Jamie to call me back. Jamie finally got back to me on Tuesday afternoon. We have a lot to catch up on, I said. You okay? Just tired, he said. I've been roped into doing overtime. Work's a nightmare. He chuckled, rather less enthusiastically than usual. I can imagine, I said. I don't want to talk about it, he said. Tell me about your stuff. God, where do I start, I said. First things first, you were right about Noddy being alive. Jamie laughed again, properly this time. He called me out of the blue. It's to do with this, um, I'm not sure if I mentioned, me and Benedict were planning a bank heist as a kind of a hobby. You did mention that, he said. I keep meaning to ask you more about it. Well, now's the time I should tell you, I said. So I told him everything I knew about Brollywood Bank. I outlined our plans to rob the place. This explanation took a while, because naturally Jamie had questions. We went off on a few tangents. Also, he fell asleep at one point. I heard him snoring down the line at me. I had to yell his name several times to get him conscious again. Finally, he got around to asking how Noddy came to be part of all of this. 
The thing is, I said, this notebook of ours, the one that could have easily been burnt to a crisp when your house burnt down, sorry to bring that up, that's okay, the notebook was stolen, and it's clearly a targeted attack. These people knew what they were looking for. That's weird, he said. It's true, I said. Oh, I believe you, Frank, he said. I suppose lots of people wouldn't, but for me, this story of yours is entirely plausible. You just don't seem like the sort of person who'd make these things up. I've met fantasists before. You know me, Frank. I'm a sucker for a good story. I think that's why these people are attracted to me. From my experience, people who make things up about themselves fall into two camps, attention grabbers and sympathy seekers. The attention grabbers will concoct all sorts of stories about themselves in order to feel important. Usually it's easy enough to tell that these people are lying. You can see it in their eyes, that deep insecurity that's driving them to make these wild claims about, for example, being the son of a notorious diamond smuggler or being good friends with Prince William, having known him from boarding school. I've had different people claim both of these backstories. And it's not as though those stories aren't plausible. Diamond smuggling is a real thing. Prince William went to school with a bunch of people, but the stories weren't told convincingly enough. For a start, it was clear they were desperate for my approval. Then there's the sympathy seekers, people whose backstories are tinged with tragedy. Many of them have been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Often, it's the same thing many of their closest family members died from too. These people are easy enough to catch out as well, especially if you're medically trained. All I have to do is ask them a few basic questions and they conveniently change the subject. Where do you find these people? I said. I don't think I've ever met someone who's falsely claimed to be dying. You probably have, said Jamie. You probably walked past them in the street a few years later and thought, that looks just like that dude who died of cancer a few years back. Really? I'm serious, there are tons of these people about. And all they want to do is tell me their stories because, I don't know, I must have a friendly face or something. You do, I said. Well, that confirms it then. The point I was making was, you're clearly not like any of these people, Frank. The guy who claimed to be friends with Prince William, for example, it was one of the first things he brought up in conversation. I never questioned the fact that you're friends with Benedict, because I only found out about him a few weeks into our friendship, and even then you were slightly embarrassed about him, like he was crimping your style. He continues to do so, I said. You're not like the sympathy seekers either, he said. Your stories are far too elaborate for that. Sure, you told me about your friend who had a heart attack, but also... He had a panic button which alerted some fellow members of his top-secret organisation. I suppose there's the possibility that you have a foot in both camps, simultaneously seeking sympathy by telling me about your friend's cardiac arrest while also attempting to impress me with his high-tech escape plan. But even with all this stuff about naughty secret society, I don't question any of that. I believe you because I could see you were genuinely upset about Noddy's death, or near-death experience as it turns out. As for Noddy's stories about the community, well, you've made it clear those aren't your stories. It's stuff you've heard from other people. To be fair, I said, I don't actually know if Brollywood Bank is a real place or not. Maybe Benedict's one of these fantasist types you're speaking of. He doesn't quite fit the profile, though, said Jamie. Clearly he's a high achiever. One of the guys at my work claims to have previously worked as a brain surgeon in Tunisia. He had to quit because of some issues with his visa and has taken a nursing position in the UK as a stopgap. There may be some grain of truth to this story, like maybe he went to Tunisia on holiday once. My point is, he's unhappy with his life. He's embarrassed about working in what he considers to be a lowly position. 
So he tells everyone he's a brain surgeon. They nod and smile and say, sure, you're a brain surgeon in Tunisia, whatever. Benedict doesn't have a reason to make these things up. Yes, I believe him too, I said. I don't mean to be cruel, but I don't think he'd actually have the mental capacity to dream up something like Brollywood Bank. Jamie laughed again, stifling a yawn alongside it. Sorry, I know I'm keeping you awake, I said. I haven't even gone into Noddy's involvement yet. Oh yes, he said. We do need to get into that. I promise I'll stay awake for this bit. Noddy's been keeping an eye on me, as it turns out. And he got in touch because he's interested to know what happened to the notebook. He has this theory. And this is where he gets interesting, mate. You're not going to believe who Noddy suspects is responsible. He didn't take it himself, then? No, it wasn't him or any other member of the community. Care to take a guess? Wouldn't know where to start, said Jamie. I'll give you a hand, I said. That's the clue. I listened to the silence down the line as the penny dropped. The hand, said Jamie. You mean the mythical organisation? The rogue band of former spies or whatever they were? Exactly, I said. Noddy's been researching them himself over the last few years. He's been officially retired from community business since his heart attack, so it's been a pet project of his. Stories about the hand have been circulating throughout the community for years. Most community members wholeheartedly believe in their existence, despite the lack of hard evidence. Everything Noddy's uncovered so far has been from second or third hand sources, former government employees who heard about this or that, but nothing concrete. The closest he's come to uncovering the truth is, he's 99% sure of the location of the private residence the hand were trained in. The place is privately owned now. Details of the property's previous owners is impossible to come by. You can rent the house on Airbnb if you have a few grand to spare. It's a place for rich kids to throw parties. Consequently, it's frequently being refurbished and redecorated. The community themselves hired the place for a weekend, a few months ago. They turned the place inside out looking for clues. They found no actual evidence, but you know what they said. Every single person who visited that house, including Noddy, said this was exactly how they'd imagined it would be. This is how the house had looked in their minds the first time they'd heard about the hand. Each time they'd pondered on the story, the details of what happened changed and took on new meanings over time. But the house itself, the vision of this location, remained the same throughout. That's brilliant, said Jamie. I described myself as a sucker for a good story earlier. Pretty arrogant thing to say, actually. Hearing about this just reminds me that it's not just me. Everyone is like this. What do you make of it, though? I said. Do you think that feeling they had was some kind of proof that they'd found the right place? I don't know about that, he said. To me, it's just a story. I'd be interested to go there myself, actually, just to see if the place I pictured in my head when I heard the story matches up with theirs. I agree with you, I said. It's just a story. I don't know anyone else in the community other than Noddy, but I suspect these guys have got carried away. They've built up their own version of events over time. By his own admission, Noddy succumbed to the mythology of it too, like the names, for example. So the story goes, the five members of the hand were assigned numbers rather than names at birth. But whenever anyone from the community speaks about the hand, they don't call them by their numbers. They call them by their nicknames. Thumb, Index, Middle, Ring and Pinky. These names were never part of the original story. Someone added that later. I guess because it was preferable to calling them 1, 2, 3, 4 and 5. But once they had these nicknames, these anonymous figures started to take on their own personalities. 
Thom was the unofficial leader of the gang, technically the strongest, although his isolated position could be construed as a kind of weakness. Index was the keenest member of the group, always the first to volunteer for any task. Middle was more like a rebellious teenager, taller than the rest but rather less mature. Ring was the more traditional member of the group, a reminder of where they all came from, Her Majesty's Secret Service. Then there's Pinky, the quiet, diminutive one. Doesn't do or say very much, but still a vital member of the team. It sounds like fun making all these things up, said Jamie. That's where they've gone wrong, though, I said. They've started to believe all this stuff is based on fact, even when it's little more than fan fiction. Speaking of fan fiction, there's a bunch of that too. One community member has hand-drawn a series of comic books based on the hand's adventures following their escape. What are they like? I haven't read them, but given the opportunity, I'd love to take a look. The Hand have an unusual backstory in the sense that they're technically rogue secret agents, but the only reason they went rogue in the first place was because they were kind of lazy and incompetent. So it would be very interesting to see what kind of adventures they have in these comics. Are they the sort of people who could successfully pull off a bank heist, for example? Well, Noddy seems to think so. Yes, I said, he does. Ordinarily, I'd trust his judgement, but on this occasion I strongly suspect he's disappeared down the wrong rabbit hole. He's entered a world in which his friend's photocopied comic book series has become a plausible reality. Right, said Jamie. I'm still missing something here, I think, so Noddy believes that the hand stole your notebook. Yes. Why does he believe they did that, so they could carry out the job themselves? Yes. Here's an interesting question. Is this consistent with the version of the hand that appears in the comic books? Kind of. I said, from what I've heard about the comics, the Hand are portrayed as a band of light-hearted mercenaries. Ultimately, they're self-serving and have to be in order to survive and evade detection. They've been known to play the Good Samaritan at times, like there's one story where they rescue a bunch of children who've been captured and placed on a submarine for some reason, and the Hand take them back to their parents disguised as air ambulance officials. But there's another story where they actually pull off their own heist. It's diamonds rather than cash, but yeah, it's there in the comics. So, I see what you mean. There's the possibility that Noddy has gone too far into this fantasy version of the hand. This whole thing's a fantasy though, right? What if Noddy's right though? You did say he's spent years of his own time studying the hand, trying to get to the actual truth of it. And now he seems to think he's finally caught sight of them. Maybe he has. What other explanation is there? For what? For your notebook being stolen? There isn't one, I said. This is the only explanation we have. That doesn't mean that it's right. Maybe you should keep an open mind. You've bought into the idea of the community. They're kind of the same thing, aren't they? Outcasts operating off the grid. True, I said. I'll hear what they have to say at least. Did I mention me and Benedict are having a Zoom call with a bunch of them on Wednesday? Cool. What are you going to be talking about? I mean, what's their strategy? Are they stepping in to prevent the hand from robbing Brollywood Bank? Yeah, kind of, I think. Why would they do that? What's in it for them? Are they really that concerned about protecting some rich men's disposable income? No, I said, that's not their concern. They're interested in the hand. To Noddy and his friends, making contact with the hand will be worth far more than the contents of that bank vault. As far as they can see, the only way they can make contact with the hand is to somehow intercept their plot. This in itself is good news for Benedict and his friends, who'd very much like to keep hold of their money and their cosy little boys club. 
If we can pull this off, then everyone's a winner, I suppose. What about you? said Jamie. What's in it for you? I thought about this for a moment. At this point I realised the sun had gone down while we were talking. I'd been sitting in my room in darkness for a while. I turned the lamp on and blinked a few times. Then I said, There's nothing in it for me, I suppose. Nothing apart from the story, anyway. Well, that's everything, right? said Jamie's voice. Yes, I said. I agree. The story is everything. Before I ended the call with Jamie, I asked for Glinda's postal address. I managed to make the request sound casual. She'd left a pair of sunglasses in my van and I wanted to return them. This was actually true, although I'd subsequently lost the sunglasses. The truth was, I didn't feel like I could contact Glinda by phone anymore, given how embarrassing it had been last time. I couldn't even bring myself to text. It would put her in the awkward position of having to ignore it, or make the decision to block my number if she hadn't already. For some reason, I decided that writing a letter would be the best means of achieving, you know, whatever it was I was trying to achieve in the first place. Was I actually in love with Glinda? I couldn't say exactly. I thought about her a lot. I missed her desperately. Out of everyone I was no longer allowed to see, Glinda was the only person whose absence actually bothered me. Maybe what she said was right, though. Lockdown was making me lonely, so I'd subconsciously attach myself to the last woman I slept with. There was more to it than that, surely. True, I didn't really know her at all. I was attracted to her. But what did that actually mean? I was attracted to lots of other people, too. I wasn't writing letters to them. There was no point trying to guess my motivations. I'll just write the letter, I thought. What's the worst that could happen? So I wrote her a letter. I can't remember exactly what it said, but the gist of it was this. Dear Glinda, sorry that sounded very formal. I was thinking of saying hi, but that's more of an email thing, isn't it? It's been a while since I wrote a letter to anyone. It feels kind of romantic in its own way. Of course, I'm fully aware that you don't have any romantic feelings towards me, and with that in mind, it's kind of creepy that I'm writing this thing in the first place. I just wanted to say that once all this pandemic business is over, perhaps we could do some kind of podcasting thing together. I'm not sure how much you care about podcasting. I'm sure you have more important things on your mind right now. I'm also aware that when it's possible to start caring about inconsequential things again, perhaps you might like to take a listen to my podcast. It's called Ragbag. It's actually very good. I'm not bragging. Well, maybe I am a little bit. I'm only saying this because I'm aware that you have a podcast which you're not very happy with, and I wondered if at some point maybe you'd like to jump ship and get involved with me on a podcasting level. That's all I'm talking about. I'm rambling now. Now? You've been rambling since the word dear. Anyway, bye for now. Frank. I actually thought this letter was a genuinely great piece of writing. I stuck it in the post box down the street and skipped back to my room, positively glowing. A couple of hours later, I received a text from Jamie, saying, Mate, I just found out Glinda's parents have both died within a couple of days of each other. Just letting you know, in case you were trying to get in touch with her. I tried calling her myself, but I guess she just wants to be left alone at the moment. Oh my God, I said out loud. I texted back. Sorry to hear that, mate. Did you know them? He replied, yeah, they were good people. It's a horrible situation. I couldn't imagine how Glinda was feeling. I wanted to call her myself just to say something, to let her know she wasn't alone, but I suspected I'd have only made her feel worse. This was also the moment I realised the letter I'd written wasn't quite the masterpiece I'd initially suspected. 
For one thing, my suggestion that Glinda and I start a podcast together was an obvious attempt to get close to her, despite having been rejected already. Supposedly, I'd tried my best not to come off as creepy, despite literally describing myself using that very adjective. Next time, Frank, try harder. I suppose this would have all been fine, just another entry on the ever-expanding list of my life's embarrassments. But now Glinda had been struck by this unimaginable tragedy, the letter was more than just an embarrassment. I wanted to march off down the street, break into the postbox and destroy the evidence, but I knew that was impossible as well as illegal. For a start, it was one of those cast-iron boxes, the kind where you'd need a bulldozer to crack it open. I took a walk down to the box and noted the pick-up time, 8am the following morning. I turned up at 7am just to be sure. Two hours later, I was still standing there, wondering how approximate 8am was, and if so, had turning up an hour early still been too late? A red van pulled up. A postal worker jumped out with a bunch of keys in his hands. Excuse me, I said. Hello, he said. Would you mind standing back, please? I'm trying to stick to the two metres rule. There we go, I thought. Give him a chance, said another part of my brain. There's a pandemic on here. The guy's just being sensible. I stepped aside and watched as he fumbled over the keys. I need a favour if that's okay, I said. How can I help? He said. I posted a letter in this box yesterday and then thought better of it. It's a love letter, you know what I mean? Sounds nice, he said in a rather non-committal tone. It really isn't. I said, I won't go into the details, but it's a pretty grim situation. I'd much prefer if this letter doesn't get sent, so if you'll allow me to fish it out. Oh, I don't think I can let you do that, he said. Told you it was going to be a problem, one bit of my brain said to the other. He's just doing his job, said the other bit of my brain. Pay attention. He said he doesn't think he can let us do it. That means he isn't sure. What are the actual rules about this sort of thing? I said. Surely I have the right to withdraw the letter before it gets posted. I'll be honest, he said. This has never come up before. Really? Why does that surprise you? How long have you been doing this job? About 15 years, he said. I'd have thought you'd encounter weirdos like me every other day, hanging around beside the post box, having been struck by a guilty conscience about some awful thing they've posted that they prefer to have destroyed. Listen, mate, I'd love to stay and debate this with you, but... Sorry, I said quickly, I shouldn't have called myself a weirdo. That's my self-deprecating humour kicking into gear. I do that when I'm nervous or out of my depth. It's actually what I did in that letter. I pointed to the sack in his hands, which he was hurriedly filling with the contents of the box. Come on, I added, you must have done the same sort of thing at some point in your life. Everyone has those moments where they say something stupid and wish they could take it back. I'm on the verge of one of those moments right now, he said. OK, I said, I'd appreciate it if you could answer my question. What are the actual rules? There must be some guidelines. If you're a postal worker and some weird, I mean, some reasonable member of the public asks to take one of their letters back, I'm surprised they don't train you up on this sort of thing. Why would they? He said. It's literally never happened in the last 15 years. Technically it has, I said. It's happened just now. Secondly, the correct phrasing for that sentence should be it has not happened in the last 15 years in my personal experience. You can't add a time constraint onto the word never. Thirdly, it can't be categorically stated that this scenario has never 
happen. All you can say is this inquiry has not been raised within your own personal experience. Fourthly, it's best to remove the word literally from the sentence because the way you phrased it would imply that the inquiry has not been raised by anyone over the course of the last 15 years. Sorry, I'm rambling now and I'm correcting your grammar in a foolhardy attempt to win back your respect. And this is coming from the mouth of a man who doesn't actually know if fourthly is a real word. I said it with a certain degree of confidence, but what I'm trying to say is... What am I trying to say? Sorry, I'm really not used to getting up this early in the morning. I don't know how you guys do it. I suppose after 15 years, your, your body clock just kicks into gear, right? I really must be going, he said. Hang on, I said. I've remembered what I was going to say. Something about my rights. My rights as a person who sends letters. There must be some legislation in place. I suggest you call customer services, he said, pointedly tying a knot in the top of his sack. I don't want to call customer services, I said. I have a member of Her Majesty's privatised Royal Mail Service standing right in front of me with the actual physical letter I want to have actually physically withdrawn. What are customer services going to do for me that you can't do? Nothing, right? OK, he said. OK, I'll make a quick phone call. The man whipped out his mobile and called his manager. He explained the situation. He listened to what his boss had to say. Then he ended the call. My boss doesn't know either, he said. It seems to me there is a simple test we can carry out here. If you could tell me the name and address of the person you sent the letter to, I can find it and hand it back to you. Then we can both be on our way. He untied the knot at the top of the sack with the effortless ease of a man who's been untying knots at the tops of sacks every day for the last decade and a half. I appreciate that, I said. Her name's Glinda. Like the Witch of the North, he said. Yes, I said. Thank you. And the address, he said. I have it written down at home, I said. I didn't bring it with me. That might pose a problem. Just look for the name. I'd be very surprised if there's more than one letter addressed to a person with the first name Glinda in there. It doesn't look like there's much more than eight or nine letters in there anyway. That's true, he said. But it just occurred to me, how do I know you're the person you're claiming to be? Who am I claiming to be? You could be a fraudster of some kind, he said. You're asking me to retrieve a letter. You only know the person's first name. You can't even remember the address. Bear this in mind, I said. It's true, I don't actually know Glinda's surname. It never came up in conversation, so I just addressed it to Glinda. That must prove something, right? It proves that's my letter. Otherwise, how would I know there's no surname? It's true that you seem to have some limited knowledge of a letter that was posted in this box, he said but that information could have been gleaned from elsewhere. You see, I do get trained on this stuff. I do an online data protection course every six months. It hasn't really proven useful until now. Look, I said, it's very, very easy to prove that I wrote that letter. Give me a pen and paper, I'll write something down, then you can match the handwriting to what's on the envelope. That wouldn't necessarily prove anything, he said. Why not? Because... Imitating a person's handwriting? Isn't that something a fraudster would do? Oh, Jesus H. Christ! I exploded. Just give me the letter with you. I've been waiting here patiently for two whole hours. I realise that isn't your problem, but here's the thing. You are my problem. Give me the letter! I don't have to listen to this, he said, slinging the sack into the passenger seat and jumping back behind the wheel. Before he drove off, he wound down his window and added... I do recommend contacting customer services 
once you have the full postal address to hand. I watched the red van disappear off round the corner. I walked home, kicked off my shoes, left a note for Uncle Claude requesting that he cook his own breakfast and climbed into bed. The following morning at 11am, Noddy sent me a Zoom link. By the time I clicked on it, everyone else was already in the meeting. Noddy and Benedict were the only ones with video enabled. Benedict appeared to be lying down in the back seat of his car. Noddy had a plain white wall behind him. The other three members of the group were labelled knife, fork and kettle. Hi Frank, Noddy greeted on my arrival. Thanks for sending the replicated robbing diary. Do we all have a copy? The congregation quietly muttered yes. I don't have one in front of me, I said. I have it in my head though. Benedict, said Noddy warmly, as though talking to an old friend. Did you get a chance to check it over? I did, said Benedict, with a mild grimace. You okay, mate, I said. I'm fine, he said. Just a little self-conscious about being spotted. I'm in Sainsbury's car park. I had you down as more of a waitrose man. The supermarket is my cover story, he said. You do have the perfect excuse to obscure your appearance at the moment, I said. Stick a face mask on. I'll just stay lying down, he said. I was just wondering, Noddy interjected, whether Frank's recreation of your plans are accurate. Anything to add? No, I'd say this new version is word perfect. Good to hear, said Noddy. By the way, I haven't introduced my fellow community members yet. Interesting names, I said. Why kettle and not spoon? Spoon couldn't make it, said Noddy. We'll update her later on. My colleagues will be mostly remaining quiet. Much like yourself, Benedict, they're a little concerned about disclosing their identities to the wider public. The wider public, in this case, being you two. It's nice to meet you all anyway, I said. Mr Noddy, said Benedict. It's just Noddy, thanks, said Noddy. It's a nickname. OK, why do they call you that again? To be honest, no one calls me Noddy apart from Frank. I acquired the nickname in prison. Truth be told, I have no official identity. I have an alias within the community, but we've agreed to keep that a secret. Are you named after a kitchen utensil? I said. I couldn't possibly say, said Noddy. So, Noddy, said Benedict, I'm curious about this community of yours. How many members are there altogether? I can't say. What purpose does the community serve? I can't say. Is there anything you can say? It's best if we stick to the matter in hand. You can think of the community as a secret society, if you like. Is that how you see yourselves, as a secret society? I can't say. You can't even say whether you're a secret society or not? It's a secret, that's the point. I understand. Let's get to the point of what we're doing here, said Noddy. Yes, I said, I really would like to know what we are doing here. Let me be completely honest, said Noddy. Frank, Benedict, the community's reasons for engaging with you are entirely self-serving. However, I'm very much aware that you yourself, Benedict, have found yourself in a very awkward situation. That's one way of putting it, said Benedict. You are company secretary of Brollywood Bank. You are also responsible for drawing up a highly sophisticated set of plans to clear out the bank's vaults. These plans have now, I believe, fallen into the hands of an elite group of individuals with the skills to carry out the job. I would definitely call that an awkward situation. It is indeed, said Benedict. Thus far, I've taken the coward solution. I've failed to do my duty and alert the bank to our predicament. What I ought to be doing right now is calling every member on our books, alerting them to a security threat and advising them to withdraw their funds immediately. 
But you haven't done that, said Noddy, so here we are. You say that, I cut in, but I still don't know where we actually are. I still don't see how you can help Benedict out of this hole he's dug for himself. Admittedly, I helped a lot with the digging, but... Oh, we can drag you out of your hole quite easily, said Noddy. How are you going to do that, I said. The hand, or whatever they call themselves, know exactly how to carry out the job, and you, by your own admission, know absolutely nothing about them. How are you going to stop them from stealing that money? Isn't it obvious, said Noddy. No. Why do you think I asked you to recreate the robbing diary? So you have access to the same information as the hand, I suppose. Yes, but how is that going to help? You tell me. You honestly haven't guessed yet. No, I said, I haven't. How about you, Benedict, said Noddy. Can we just get on with this, Mr Noddy, said Benedict. Just Noddy. OK, Noddy. Can we please just get to the point? My feet are going numb. Sorry, said Noddy. I spend a lot of time hanging around with criminal masterminds. Sometimes I incorrectly assume everyone's on the same page as me. You can be forgiven for not deducing my plan, given the lack of any real clues. So here we are. Our means of preventing the hand from robbing Rollywood Bank is very, very simple. We're going to beat them to it. Noddy sat back in his chair, placed his hands behind his head and let out a contented sigh. Beat them to what? I said. Oh, keep up, Frank, he snapped. We're going to rob the bank ourselves. Not to keep the money, of course, to keep it safe. And then what? said Benedict. Then we wait for the hand to turn up. As I've said, they have the skills to carry out the job, but they'll still need preparation time. We have the upper hand because we have the two of you on side. We can carry out the job much quicker. Within the next couple of weeks, hopefully, the hand will need at least a month. Who are the hand exactly? said Benedict. I suppose you aren't allowed to tell me about them either. Actually, said Noddy, I'm happy to tell you everything I know. It's an interesting story. I'm aware that I keep promising to tell you what Frank and Benedict's secret robbing diary actually says. Sorry for stringing you along like this. Let's get into the details. The rest of the story won't make any sense without the following information. As I mentioned earlier, Brollywood Bank has 24-hour man security. There are at least four security guards on site at any one time. Two inside the bank and two outside at ground level. They all have guns. There's CCTV in every room with additional hidden cameras attached to fence posts on the bunker's exterior. The building is almost completely invisible from ground level. Other than a few odd-looking pipes and ventilators protruding from the ground here and there, the site could pass for a regular overgrown field. There is only one way into the bank and that's through a concealed door, which, when closed, looks just like a section of grass. Entering without a key, plus the correct combination for the lock, would require either a massive bomb or some seriously high-powered machinery. And that's once you've incapacitated two of the armed guards. This is one reason why Noddy correctly observed that pulling off this heist would be easier for us. The hand had neither the key nor the combination. Thanks to Benedict, we had both. This did not mean the hand were incapable of entering the building. As Noddy had suggested, they just needed time to prepare. Once inside the building, whoever entered would be greeted by security. An unfamiliar face would be questioned as to how they managed to get through the door. Most of the bank's customers have neither the key nor the combination. They must identify themselves before entering. Again, the hand had no easy means of passing themselves off as a member of the bank. Thanks to Benedict, we had the actual company secretary at our disposal. So the first part of the plan was easy. 
the challenge we faced was distracting the guards. Actually, there's a stage before all of that which needed to occur the previous day, or at least sometime before the robbery itself. To remove any element of risk, it's essential that the guards have their weapons neutralised. So the first proper stage of the plan is for myself and Benedict to arrive at Brollywood Bank, driving a rented van, and let ourselves in through the concealed door. We'll be greeted by a security guard. Benedict will introduce me as the new weapons safety inspector. I'm here to ensure all firearms are in good working order. Of course, I can't discharge them here, I'll say. I'll take the guns to a secure site, ensure they're all safe and functional. I'll bring them back shortly. If the security officer questions the need to remove all firearms from the site, Benedict will remind them of what they learned in training. The guns are only there as an additional layer of protection. With or without weapons, this is one of the most secure facilities in the country, not least of all because no one actually knows of its existence. Anyway, he'll add, our good friend here will be back in half an hour. I'll head back to the van, leaving Benedict behind. Before I drive off, I'll deposit three large sealed cardboard boxes at the bank's doorstep. I'll drive off round the corner, park up somewhere quiet for half an hour, then return to the site. I'll leave the guns in the car, taking instead a case full of harmless replicas, which in the event of being discharged will shoot out one of those comedy flags with the words BANG printed on it. While I'm gone, Benedict will retrieve the cardboard boxes one by one from the entrance. The boxes will be too large for him to carry down the stairs single-handedly, so he'll request some help from one of the security guards, who'll assist with carrying the boxes down three flights of stairs to the vault. Benedict will explain he's placing some valuables in the vault for safekeeping, prototype props for the next Marvel movie, which he's contractually obliged never to reveal to any third parties. This is the safest place I can think of, he will say. Imagine if my kids got hold of these and texted the pictures to all of their friends. The vault, by the way, is a secure, reinforced steel container which takes up the majority of the third floor below ground. It contains somewhere in the region of £100 million, mostly in stacks of £50 notes. I don't know if you've ever seen a million pounds in cash up close, or even considered what it might look like, but when arranged in stacks of £50 notes, one million pounds takes up very little space. You could fit the whole thing in a briefcase like they do in films. Obviously, a hundred million pounds needs more space than that, but still, we're only talking about a hundred briefcases here. Given the size of the Brollywood vault, most of the space inside was empty. More than enough space for Benedict's three cardboard boxes, which are large enough to eclipse the pile of money sitting innocently in the middle of the room. I'll arrive back with the replica guns. Benedict will then sign me out and we'll disappear together. We'll return to the bank on a different day, at a time when an entirely different set of security guards are scheduled to be working. None of them will have laid eyes on me before. And even if they have, if, for example, two of the guards decided to switch shifts at the last minute... It's unlikely I'd be recognised anyway. My role as the firearms safety inspector was deliberately brief. On my second appearance at the bank, I'd be dressed differently, with a different hairstyle. I'd have a couple of days stubble on my face, plus a large pair of sunglasses. Benedict wouldn't even need to introduce me to the security guard, because it would be assumed that the security guard knew who I was. And if he didn't know who I was, he was in no position to ask. I was an associate of Benedict's who wished to become a member of the bank. Benedict was here to show me around and run through the paperwork. This would not seem in any way suspicious. Benedict had been personally involved in signing up a number of Brollywood's customers. 
So what if I was less recognisable than Hugh Grant, or indeed famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons? I did have an official identity in this role, by the way, in case the security guard was the curious type and couldn't resist asking where he recognised me from. I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but it's necessary to mention at this point something I've successfully avoided having mentioned thus far. Between the years 2014 and 2015, I was employed as a film and TV extra, although I didn't do much work in that particular field. The agency who employed me doubled up as a celebrity lookalike specialist. During my 12 months employment, I made most of my money as a lookalike for Marty Pello from the band Wet Wet Wet. I find this rather embarrassing, not because I have a problem with looking like Marty Pello. Marty Pello is a famous pop star and a very attractive man. Sure, wet, wet, wet whenever the coolest kid's on the block, but whatever, it's all a matter of personal taste. The fact that I successfully made a living as a Marty Pello lookalike is embarrassing for one simple reason. I do not look like Marty Pello. Sure, I look like him in the sense that we're both slim, dark-haired, white dudes with teeth. I'm mentioning the teeth because around the time I was impersonating him, a lot of people seem to think me and Marty Pello have the same smile. Quite often I'd turn up at the party I was booked to attend as Marty Pello, they'd answer the door, I'd introduce myself and they'd say, you don't look anything like Marty Pello. Then I'd smile and they'd go, oh right, I can see it now. I got in the habit of smiling as soon as they opened the door. Also, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, well, you probably don't even know who Marty Pello is, so bear with me, but Marty Pello used to do this little head bobbing thing when he was performing, like he'd playfully move his head from side to side. It's not exactly dancing, it's more of a tick than anything else. I have the same tick, the exact same thing. I do it all the time. I bob my head around when I'm talking, or even when I'm just lounging around not doing much. So, in summary, there is that similarity. But still, even on the basis of that evidence, I remain of the firm opinion that I do not look like Marty Pella. This is just as well because the security guard probably wouldn't have asked me who I was, so it wouldn't have been necessary for me to reply. Benedict would then usher me off and launch into a guided tour of the premises. And so begins the next part of the plan, disabling the security cameras. This part, in theory at least, will be very easy indeed. Each new potential Brollywood customer gets treated to the same guided tour, beginning with the upper floor. This includes the observation room, in which real-time footage from each of the site's security cameras is displayed on a wall of monitors. All Benedict has to do is lead me into the room, begin his spiel about Brollywood surveillance technology, then interrupt himself, addressing the guard on duty at the desk with some words to the effect of, Actually, I think this desk will be a nice little spot to run through Mr Pellow's paperwork, so if you'd like to pop off for a tea break, I'm more than happy to keep an eye on the monitors for you. This should take around 20 minutes. Once the security guard had disappeared, Benedict would then log into the computer, granting authorization for the settings on the cameras to be changed. Every camera, apart from the two that were positioned in the recreation area on the middle floor, were to be temporarily disabled, with the footage replaced with a pre-recorded loop of previously captured images. No doubt you've seen this trick before. I don't know how many real-life criminals have actually employed this technique, but it's a well-worn trope as far as fictional robberies go. No heisting team is complete without an advanced computer hacker who can casually bash a few keys on his laptop and instantly dock to the security footage. But how is it actually done? 
It's worth noting at this point that Benedict had absolutely no idea how to answer this question, and yet, even though the pair of us knew this plan of ours was never going to come to fruition, not least of all because actually doing it for real would involve stealing money neither of us needed from Benedict's close friends, Benedict nonetheless took it upon himself to learn the ins and outs of the Bollywood IT system so that we could, if we so desired, rob the bank without being captured on video. I have to say, at the time, this really took mine and Benedict's friendship up to the next level, almost to the point of us being regular friends. He'd been bearable enough up until that point. He was a fan of my work, which was flattering in its own way. He wanted to spend time with me, which was weird and kind of annoying, but I went along with it just to be nice. But this bank heist thing really did bring the two of us closer together. For one thing, it was great to hear the story of this underground bank that no one knew about aside from a select group of individuals. It was fun exploring the various different strategies we could have employed to eventually get the money out of that vault. But most of all, seeing that level of commitment to the idea, Benedict's determination to succeed, to the point of training himself up to performing a full-on computer hack, gave me a newfound respect for the guy. I even considered watching one of his films to see if his acting was up to scratch, but I was too excited about the heist plan to bother. I said all of this to him out loud at the time. I said, I actually do respect you, mate. You're leading this team like a pro. Thank you, he said. That means a lot to me. I said, up until this point, I thought this whole heist thing was a bit of a laugh, but you professionalised this whole process. You've actually upskilled yourself for the sake of the game. This is what I do, he said seriously. You put it very succinctly there, in fact. I'll have to make a note of that. Upskilling oneself for the sake of one's game. That speaks volumes, actually. On one level, that's all acting has ever been. A game. One person pretending to be someone else for the sake of entertainment. What is there to take seriously about that? Well, for one thing, entertainment is crucial to our survival. Without it, we wither and die. Would you agree with that? Maybe not literally, I said, but yes, I can see where you're coming from. So that's what's required from any practitioner within the world of entertainment, said Benedict. The sense of being fully committed to the thing that you're doing, whatever that thing is, whether it's pretending to be a superhero, or pretending to be a detective, or pretending to be Professor Stephen Hawking. Eh? I said. Oh, it's a role I've played in the past. The point I'm making is, you actually got paid to pretend to be Stephen Hawking. Don't worry, it was tastefully done. And as I'm doing now, learning the Brawlywood IT system, this is just another day at the office for me. I had that same level of commitment when I played the late professor. Did you do the voice? I said. Sorry? That computerised voice, did you do that as well? Of course I didn't, Frank. The computer did the computerised voice because Professor Hawkins had lost the power of speech. How intentative. I see what you mean, I said. I suppose there's more to your profession than meets the eye. I've always thought of actors kind of in the same way that Professor Hawkins thought of his voice simulator. I'll do the words, you do the talking. I'm starting to think there may be more to it than that. More to it than just reciting lines, you mean, said Benedict. Yes, I said. For a start, you have to pull faces as well. Sad face, happy face, puzzled face. Motor neurone disease face. It was tastefully done, Benedict repeated firmly. <laughs> I'm just winding you up, I said with a smile. Oh, Benedict snorted. Ha 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 So you are. Where were we? I'm aware this is a lot of information to take in. Just remember there are three large cardboard boxes in the vault, supposedly filled with prototype Marvel props. I'm mentioning this in case you assumed it was just Benedict carrying out some kind of personal errand partway through the preliminary stages of the heist. 
If that was your assumption, I'll let you in on a secret at this stage. The Marvel thing was just a cover story, but you got that, right? Anyway, once Benedict has undergone 15 minutes of technical jiggery-pokery with the Brollywood IT systems, disabling all but two of the security cameras, he'll return to the business of pretending to complete Marty Pello's forms. I'll have to remain in character the whole time, in case anyone walks in. In fact, the plan is for the two of us to be deep in conversation when the security guard returns from his 20-minute tea break. Once the guard has returned, Benedict will continue my guided tour of the premises. We'll descend the stairs to the lower floor and enter the recreation area. Now comes the challenging part of the plan. Firstly, for Benedict, who is about to steal all the money from the vault. And secondly, for me, because I'm about to start a fight with a celebrity. There is, of course, a valid reason for this course of action. It's not because I wanted to. Unfortunately, it was the only possible means of providing a large enough distraction. I'm sure I've already given you this impression, but just to be clear, I'm not the fighting type. I may have unwittingly stumbled into the occasional scuffle in my life, but I found the idea of actively starting a punch-up with a real-life person terrifying beyond belief. The added challenge was to carry out this ordeal in character as Marty Pello, a man who I do not look like and struggle to convincingly imitate. Back in my look-alike days, I could blast out a passable karaoke rendition of Lobbies All Around. That was all well and good but I couldn't burst into song in this scenario. I needed to pick a fight using Pello's speaking voice. Sure, I can kind of do a Scottish accent, as long as there aren't any actual Scottish people present at the time to pick the whole thing apart. But it's one thing to imitate the Scottish accent in general conversation. It's another to maintain the accent while you're fighting a celebrity. But that's what was needed for this part of the plan to work. What's more, it all had to be timed to perfection. The fight had to start precisely five and a half minutes after entering the room, and it needed to last for a minimum of six minutes. Six whole minutes. That's a long time. This was no charity boxing match either. This was a real-life fight. And in order to achieve our objective, the altercation needed to be as chaotic as possible. More on that later. One thing I haven't mentioned yet is that our arrival was set to coincide with the time and date on which at least one member of Brollywood Bank was guaranteed to be present in the recreation area. In theory, this was easy enough to predict, bearing in mind Benedict had access to the bank's booking system. In practice, however, members often arrived unannounced, while others used the booking system then failed to show up their appointments. Taking all of these variables into account, Benedict decided the best time for us to strike would be a Wednesday afternoon. Regardless of whether the booking system was utilised or not, for some reason, Wednesday afternoons seemed to be the most popular time for Brollywood members to make use of their recreation space. We were pretty much guaranteed to have at least one member there on the day we chose to strike. If the recreation room happened to be empty, we'd hang around for a while in the hope that someone would show up, if that didn't work, we'd go home again and return the following Wednesday to resume the tour. But hey, let's get on with the heist. Let's assume there's someone there. Benedict will introduce me to whichever celebrity it happens to be. Let's say it's Jason Isaacs, known to members of the Brollywood community as Scarzi, which happens to be his surname backwards. Scarzi! Benedict would greet him. Allow me to introduce my good friend Marty Pello. Marty, this is my good friend Jason Isaacs. Scarzi for short, of course. I'm just giving Marty the guided tour. Actually, Scarzi, would you mind showing Marty where things are on this floor? Drinks, fridges, no-go areas, etc. I just have some personal matters to attend to. 
Benedict would disappear back to the stairwell and descend the stairs to the vault. As I've said, I now had five and a half minutes to make polite small talk with Scarzi before the fight broke out. During this time, it was necessary for the conversation to grow less and less polite. The fight couldn't simply spring itself out of the blue. There needed to be some kind of preamble. But the gradual deterioration in my level of politeness during that five and a half minutes had to be carefully controlled. If I was too rude, I'd run the risk of the fight breaking out too early, which meant it would be likely to finish sooner than required. If I wasn't rude enough, there'd be the risk of the fight not taking place at all, or manifesting itself as a heated debate without the required level of explosiveness. My strategy for confrontation was simple. Benedict's theory was that each of the men who used the Brollywood Bank facilities did so because they had a special activity they'd prefer to keep behind closed doors. This place was a sanctuary for these men. Imagine our friend Scarzi and his puppet theatre, he said. If Scarzi had a regular job, he could disappear off to the garden shed in the evening or get an allotment and set up a puppet theatre there. If anyone spotted him or overheard his squeaky voices, maybe he'd be mildly embarrassed by having an eccentric hobby, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. Unfortunately, Scarzi is a famous actor. He's done his Harry Potters, his Shakespeare's, he's tried his hand at everything going. The only thing he can't do is puppet theatre. That would undermine everything he's ever worked for. He might as well do a voiceover for Scooby-Doo. Actually, that's a very bad example because Scarzi actually did that recently. My point is, for a professional of his calibre, puppet theatre is a no-go. So he can't erect a puppet theatre in his garden shed. Imagine if someone took a sneaky shot through the door. How many seconds would that take to go viral? I don't know, I said. Would anyone really care? Scarzi would, said Benedict seriously. This is his legacy we're talking about. I see what you're saying, I said. The thing is, Frank, we can use these insecurities for our advantage. Scarzi, like yourself, is not a violent man, but that doesn't mean you can't enrage him. The easiest way of doing that is to play to his weak spot. Make fun of his puppet theatre, I said. Exactly. You'll have the excuse that Marty Pello is a newbie and hasn't yet been briefed on the unwritten code that exists between Brollywood Bank members. Which is? Don't pass judgment on each other's life choices, whatever they happen to be. That seems reasonable. Trust me, said Benedict, it's not always easy. Why not, I said. What kind of debauchery do these guys get up to? Or am I better off not knowing? Oh, it's all perfectly innocent stuff, said Benedict quickly. So, what do you find difficult passing judgment on? Well, he said, well, I realise this is a hypothetical bank heist, Frank, but we are taking this very seriously, and I suppose if I've betrayed my Brollywood brethren enough to disclose the details of Scarzi's puppet theatre, there's no reason why I can't mention the antics of famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons. And so, Benedict told me. I laughed at first. Then I realised he wasn't joking. And he hasn't been arrested yet, I said after a while. Believe it or not, said Benedict, he's not actually breaking any laws. Surely? Seriously, look it up. Technically, it's not against the law. Plus, the participants sign a contract explicitly agreeing to the process in advance. You don't think they're being exploited, though? They're fans of his, said Benedict. Die-hard fans, if you pardon the expression. More on that later. For the time being, at least, let's forget about famous man who cannot be named for legal reasons. Here's my proposed conversation with Scarzi. Of course, there's no real way of knowing how this conversation would have actually played out, 
Even with Benedict's insights into Scarzi's personality, there's still the possibility that Scarzi would have responded in an entirely different manner, which would have meant I'd have to goad him in some other way. I could have morphed myself into a Twitter troll and told him his voiceover in that Scooby-Doo film was his finest achievement, but that was a worst-case scenario. Tea and coffee-making facilities are right here, Scarzi would say. The machine's fairly self-explanatory. Are you a coffee drinker, Mr. Pello? Marty, I'd say. Marty, he'd repeat. I'm an espresso man, specifically, I'd reply, even though specifically is one of those words that can really catch you out if you're attempting it in a fake accent. Well, this one's very straightforward, Scarzi would explain. It's this button here. By this point, I'd probably be getting a little nervous about the length of time the coffee conversation was taking. We'd probably be around two minutes in already, which would leave me three and a half minutes to ensure Scarzi was suitably maddened. At this point, I'd casually leap in with the inquiry, Is that a puppet theatre I saw back there? It is, Scarzi would reluctantly respond. Bear in mind, Marty Pello is only a potential Brollywood member. And these two men have never met each other before, unless, by some weird coincidence, they have, which would make this exchange much more difficult to navigate. This, by the way, is one of the main reasons I ended up being cast as Marty Pello in the first place. Pello works primarily in the music industry, and while he may have rubbed shoulders with the occasional Hollywood star, is unlikely to have met any of our potential targets in the Brollywood heist. There was a question mark over Hugh Grant, who starred in a film which Pello sang the theme song for, although according to our research there was no evidence the two men had actually met. Even if they had, the encounter would likely have taken place in the mid-90s. Also, as I said before, Grant very rarely visited Brollywood in person, so the chances of being caught out were very low. As I've said, my impersonation of Marty Pello was bad, but not catastrophically so. Given that Benedict was there to vouch for me, the only way my identity would be compromised would be for the actor I was attempting to start the fight with had either A. met Marty Pello before, or B. happened to be a huge Wet 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 fan and therefore spent significant amounts of time looking at photo and video footage of the man I was claiming to be. Luckily, option B was even more unlikely than option A, which is an interesting point. Wet 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 were a huge commercial success, not least of all due to recording the biggest-selling UK single of the 1990s. Nonetheless, even in my work as a professional Marty Pello impersonator, I have never met an actual Wet 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 superfan. Nine times out of ten, I was booked as a surprise birthday gift for someone who admired Pello on the basis of his looks, which is why it was usually a disappointment when a man who looked nothing like Marty Pello turned up at their door. Very few people seemed to care much for his actual music. Even that aforementioned hit single was extremely bland, a cover of a song from the 60s which had largely been forgotten due to its inherent forgettableness. I suppose I'm bringing this up because I've been thinking lately about Jamie's theory about the hula hoop principle, and it's interesting to note that it's possible to sell millions of records, way more than David Bowie ever did, and yet still fail from a hula hooping perspective. I don't mean to be overly critical of Pello or his band, by the way. He's a talented guy and he's good at what he does, as they say. But will anyone remember him in 50 years' time? I'm not sure if anyone actually remembers him now. Let's stop talking about Marty Pello. I was telling you about my conversation with Scarzi. 
So three and a half minutes until fight time, I've brought up the subject of his puppet theatre. Is this an extension of your acting work? I'd inquire. Oh no, Scarzi would respond, shifting his feet from side to side and gazing at the wall. It's a private pleasure. What sort of shows do you do with it? I'd say. Punch and Judy type thing or something a little bit more contemporary? Well, that's a good question, he'd say. It's actually a variety show. I have all sorts of different puppets, cute animal ones for the kids, a clown who pops up for a comedy turn. Then I've got some serious puppets, a Hamlet one, for instance, does the whole soliloquy thing. Sounds great, I'd say. I haven't seen anything like that before. Maybe there's a market out there. There isn't, he'd say. Trust me, this would ruin my career if I ever tried to launch this thing commercially. Besides, I don't need any further levels of fame or recognition. The acting game is keeping me nicely afloat right now. I wouldn't want to jeopardise that. Is this like a childhood thing for you then? I'd say, taking a quick glance at my watch. Two and a half minutes left on the clock. How do you mean? Scarzi would say, his eyes narrowing, looking directly at me now. Did you have one of these things as a kid? No, I didn't. Let me guess you wanted one, but your parents told you no. You should be out playing football or racing your bike around, not doing Punch and Judy shows. It isn't Punch and Judy, he'd snap. Steady on, I'd say. I'm just interested in your backstory, that's all. Trust me, I've had to deal with the same old parental anxieties too. Oh, you want to be a singer, do you? Get up and sing songs on stage like a wee lassie. My parents were very supportive of my choice of career, actually, Scarzi would say. So what's the big fascination with puppet theatres, I'd say. Are you sure there isn't a little lost boy in that head of yours yearning for a childhood he was never allowed access to? Another glance at the watch. One and a half minutes left. Listen, Scarzi would say, trying his best to remain calm. This is Brollywood, okay, mate? We have a gentleman's agreement here. We don't ask questions. We let each other get on with it, whatever it happens to be. Oh, no problem, pal, I'd reply. My bad, my bad. I'd pause for the briefest of moments before adding, It was awfully violent, though. The whole Punch and Judy show, wasn't it? And then... I would slap the actor Jason Isaacs across the face. I would then stand back, pretending for a moment that I hadn't actually done it. The actor Jason Isaacs would be lost for words. He'd raise a hand to his face, his breath quickening. Very much of its time, I suppose. I'd continue. I don't suppose you could do that sort of thing in this day and age, a children's show about a wife-beating, court-bashing maniac with a sideline in animal cruelty. No thanks. Then I'd slap him across the face again. In a way, I'd continue. I suppose you could say the violence in Punch and Judy taps into some kind of primal animal urges. To apply some 21st century lingo, you could say Mr Punch himself is one of the purest manifestations of toxic masculinity. A slap to his left cheek this time. Maybe Freud's a better judge, I'd say. Perhaps Punch is simply Ed personified. What the hell are you doing? The actor Jason Isaacs would roar, suddenly regaining the power of speech. We're just having a discussion, I'd say in mock innocence. Let me fill you in on another small detail from our gentleman's agreement, he'd splutter. 
we don't hit each other. At this point, both myself and the actor Jason Isaacs would be aware of at least one other man in the room with us. Assuming the guard on monitor duty was paying close enough attention, the image of me repeatedly striking Scarzi in the face would be enough to cause him to run down the stairs and check that we weren't play fighting. If he didn't happen to be paying attention, and let's face it, I wouldn't be if I was him, Scarzi's shout of what the hell are you doing should easily have been in earshot of both guards stationed within the building. Both would be with us within seconds, not yet on high alert, but both of them aware there's been some kind of disturbance. Scarzi's second shout will prompt at least one of the guards to contact his two colleagues above ground to abandon their posts and assist with an incident on LG2. 30 seconds left on the clock. It's tight, but assuming the security staff are attending to their duties in a timely manner, 30 seconds is all we need. So now there's me and Scarzi, accompanied by four armed security men. So far, so good. I've successfully distracted the security guards, allowing Benedict to carry out the next stage of the plan. Now there's just a small matter of keeping all four security guards 100% distracted for six whole minutes. Thankfully, the only way to guarantee this exercise in protracted distraction takes place is to downgrade the fight from physical to verbal. Let's face it, a physical fight in these circumstances would be over very quickly. I'd be ejected from the building within seconds. But a verbal fight? We could literally be there all day. On paper, this is the easiest six minutes of this whole plot. Still, it has to be done right. It's a balancing act. In order for the entire Brollywood security team to remain in that room, the element of risk needs to remain high for a minimum of six minutes without a single punch being thrown. At the same time, the conversation can't become too threatening. If either party threatens to attack the other, we'll be escorted to the door. The aim of this game is to keep all six men in the room. Here's how we're going to do it. The tactic we're about to employ here is pretty deplorable. Sadly, we couldn't think of a better strategy. I'm about to do another horrible thing. I'd like to say I have to do this horrible thing in order to succeed in my objective. But first of all, clearly I don't have to do any of this. I'm here because this is my choice. I've chosen to do this horrible thing. And the fact that I'm owning up to the horribleness of it doesn't absolve me. Second of all, my objective is to steal £100 million. I'm not even claiming to be some kind of rob the rich to feed the poor kind of figure. I'm here because me and my friend Benedict thought that stealing £100 million from some rich people would be a bit of a laugh. That is the full extent of my moral superiority. I'm waffling on a little here simply because I don't really want to tell you what comes next, but I have to tell you what comes next. Actually, if you take basic decency out of the equation, what comes next is a rather ingenious invention. I didn't even know this was a thing until Benedict told me about it. What happens next is this thing called gaslighting. If you don't know what that means, allow me to demonstrate. Imagine I'm standing in a room having an argument with a celebrity surrounded by four security guards. The beauty of this scheme is that it can work on anyone. All you need is a little adaptation. Let's for the moment continue to assume that my adversary in this scenario is the actor Jason Isaacs. Let's return to the scene. Scarzi has just barked at me. Let me fill you in on another small detail from our gentleman's agreement. We don't hit each other. At this point, we both realise we've been joined by two security guards. 
One of them has sent a message to their colleagues. Within seconds we're surrounded. Two of us, four of them. The actor Jason Isaacs turns to the security staff and announces, This man just hit me in the face, not once, but thrice. At least four or five subsequent seconds would be consumed by a period of silence in which each member of the room contemplates the use of the word thrice. During this short silence, I will take the opportunity to point in the actor Jason Isaac's direction. So here you go. This is gaslighting. I, Frank Burton, will wave a finger in the face of the man I have just physically assaulted and in a suspiciously generic Scottish accent will utter the words... This man is a racist. The actor Jason Isaacs will respond by saying, Eh? I will reply, He's anti-Scottish, big time. He's had a problem with me since the moment I opened my mouth. And so this debate will continue for six whole minutes. As I say, it could literally continue for the rest of the day, while the audience attempt to figure out which party they're supposed to be on the side of. Should they throw me out for causing a disturbance? Should they throw Isaacs out on the basis of my claims? Who can tell? All things considered, we'll be stuck in a comfortable stalemate for at least six minutes. If the conversation looks to be resolving itself, or Isaacs attempts to diffuse the debate in a reasonable manner, I'll just throw in a few insults about his puppet theatre, just to bump up the tension. So, assuming that the heist is all going according to plan, Here's what my good friend Benedict Cumberbatch has been up to for the last few minutes. If you recall, Benedict introduced me to Scarzi, or whoever happened to be there at the time, and then promptly disappeared downstairs. Here's how Benedict will have spent the last five and a half minutes. Remember those cardboard boxes full of props I mentioned? You may have sussed this out already, but they do not contain any props. Not film props at any rate, although appropriately enough, their actual contents are exactly the sort of thing that would be used in a heist movie. The boxes are filled with stacks of fake money. Most of the notes are simply blank pieces of paper with realistic-looking fifties arranged at the top of each pile. Benedict will empty out the boxes, fill them up with cash, and replace their contents with the £10 million from the vault. The fake money will be carefully placed in the exact same position as our haul. Five and a half minutes should do the job nicely. Within five and a half minutes, all four security guards will be tied up dealing with a fiery and contentious disagreement between Jason Isaacs and Marty Pello. During the six minutes that follow, Benedict will transfer all three boxes from the vault to our van outside. Two minutes per box. That's one minute to carry a box up three flights of stairs, a second minute to return to the vault. Benedict estimates... He can easily carry a large box from the vault to the van in 50 seconds, which allows 10 seconds for loading, plus an extra 10 seconds leeway, give or take the odd stumble or trip. Once the third box is out of the vault, Benedict will close the door, which auto-locks itself. On depositing the box to the van, he'll descend the stairs to the recreation room to find myself and Scarzi, almost but not quite at each other's throats, surrounded by four bemused guards. By this point, I'll have been forced to get personal. I'll be telling Scarzi I thought his performance in the Harry Potter films was rubbish. What do you know about acting anyway? Scarzi would snap back at me. I'll have you know I've done musical theatre, you ignorant racist snob. It's likely I'll be too caught up in this debate to notice Benedict's entrance, so Benedict will announce his arrival with the words, Can I help? You know what? I'll say quickly. 
I don't think this whole Brawlywood thing's for me after all, Benedict mate. Thanks for showing me around, and thanks for introducing me to Jason. I was only pulling your leg, by the way, Jace. I'm a big fan, mate. The biggest. Sorry about that. I do have a tendency to let the banter go a bit too far. Just ask Haircut 100. Who? Story for another time. Benedict, mate, did you do that thing? Benedict will confirm. Yes, I did that thing. Would you mind driving me back then, mate? No problem, Marty. Scarzi will regain his composure and reach once again for his puppets. You have some strange friends, Nigel, he'll mutter. Speak for yourself, Benedict will quip with a playful grin. A moment later, we'll be gone. Thank you for listening. You now have the choice of moving straight on to episode 6 or sticking around for the optional bonus content that will appear right after the theme song. It's called the footnote section. It is going to be the greatest thing you ever heard if you saw it. It's not really going to be. It's going to be quite good if you choose to listen to it. If you like what you have heard so far, please visit my website, frankburton.co.uk, for more information about me and my work. I have another podcast called I Like the Sound. I've written several books, including the first two installments of the Ragbag series, Everything I Am and Getting Away With It. I recently made a four-part podcast series with David Evar from the band Herman Dune. It's called Not On Top and it's really really good you should also check out the ragbag rambler video series which is uh, on my website frankburton.co.uk in case you forgot to take a note of that the first time i mentioned that url Serenade you tonight, but the words are in my heart. Roses red, the rhythm are swaying, and like my heart, they're tenderly saying, My dear, I love you so, and even though I can't say it. The words are in my Right, so here we are at the footnotes section once again. Uh, Welcome to the footnotes section, all you uh, hardcore listeners who have chosen to continue listening, even when you don't need to. You could skip to the next episode, but you've decided to listen to 
me talking for a bit. I just thought I'd, uh, you know, include some extra content really at the end of these things. Uh, as to whether it's a good idea or not remains to be seen. But uh, this is what I'm doing for this series of Ragbag Presents. The footnotes. First of all, um, let me see. Um, well, this is the first episode in which we encounter Marty Pello from the band Wet Wet Wet. I've gone into quite some detail kind of explaining to people who don't know who Marty Pello is as to who he is. So we've kind of been there uh, within this episode. I guess no more needs to be said about that, really. Um, there was, um, I think it's a particular period in the 1980s, particularly British pop music of a certain genre. There was a trend for having really bad names for bands. I don't know if you remember this or whether you agree with me, but... Wet Wet Wet's a rubbish name for a band, isn't it? Really bad name. Why, why, why do they call themselves that? I'll tell you why they call themselves that. I know it. It's because they name themselves after a lyric from a prefab sprout song. Um, something about their eyes were wet with tears or something like that. And um, prefab sprout, that's a terrible name for a band, isn't it? Really bad. Really terrible name for a band. Prefab sprouts and uh, Deacon Blue and... Um, Haircut 100, which uh, also comes up in this episode as well, Haircut 100. You think of um, <laughs> think of the worst name that you can think of for a band and call yourself that. I think that's what they used to do in the 1980s. I don't know why. I don't know why they did it. Why did they do that? Intriguing. Uh, there's a uh, reference to uh, Benedict Cumberbatch playing the part of Stephen Hawking, which is a real thing. It really happened. Let me just... I uh, can't remember the name of the film now. Let's have a look. I'm going to Google it. It's difficult to spell Cumberbatch, isn't it? Here we are. Hmm. Oh, I see. The film is called Hawking. Benedict Cumberbatch Hawking. It's, it's very unfortunate. There's a picture of... <laughs> Why have they done this? It's, uh, it's, it's a, just looking at the film poster. And picture of the actor Benedict Cumberbatch dressed up in as a kind of a professor in front of a blackboard with some squiggles on it some sort of mathematical figures on it and he's kind of a little bit hunched over so he's pretending to have motor neuron disease it's it really is you know, benedict says it is he, he said in the episode didn't he it's it's in it's tastefully done i'm looking at that film poster and i do not it does not look tastefully done to me i haven't seen the film so i cannot comment on whether it is tastefully done or not but i mean it's difficult, isn't it, in terms of representation, I guess, of having... I guess you could... Because there was a, a much more successful film about Stephen Hawking, which, uh, no fault of uh, Benedict's, like... What was the other film called? Let's have a look. All right, yes, there's a film called The Theory of Everything um, from 2014, which was uh, also about Stephen Hawking, happened to be much more successful than the film that Benedict was in and I don't you know I don't know which is the better film I haven't seen either of them and um, <laughs> I'm not particularly interested in seeing either of them but it's I, I guess that the problem with representation I guess the argument would be why can't you get a disabled actor to play that role but I guess with motor neuron disease you would have to have a non-disabled actor playing that part because you have to see the deterioration from being physically able to being in a wheelchair and uh, going from one state to another state. So, yeah, it'd be tricky to actually get a disabled actor to play that part, but maybe you could 
get around that somehow by essentially an actor with a different disability or is that or is that, is that a bad idea because I mean you could have it's probably a bad idea but you could have uh, someone of the caliber of what's the guy from Breaking Bad called he's got cerebral palsy I don't know how I don't know how you say his name is it RJ Mitty uh, anyway um, he he's got cerebral palsy and but so he could justifiably play the part of Stephen Hawking he'd have to do the accent obviously <laughs> maybe get a British guy who's got several palsy it's getting complicated isn't it but you know that wouldn't work either because you're not representing that character's disability you know it's difficult isn't it difficult you know but we're hopefully past the point now where a blind actor can play a blind part on the TV instead of Al Pacino or somebody pretending to be blind. We're, we're getting to that point anyway. I'm not sure if we're at that point yet in terms of disabled representation, but I think those conversations are being had, which is pretty cool. There's always the, the problem of uh, even if you have uh, a wheelchair-using character who there's a flashback scene to when they could walk that's their way of justifying the fact that they're using an able-bodied actor and sticking him in a wheelchair. But then, you know, you could you could computer animate the guy walking. doesn't have to be that, does it? There's ways around these things. Just arguing with myself for no reason at all. <laughs> There's only one person here. I'm literally the only person in the room. And I'm having an argument with myself. Why am I doing this? I don't know. Let's see, who who else do we uh, bring up here? Uh, oh, uh, Jason Isaacs is in this one. He's internationally famous, so I guess I don't need to explain who Jason Isaacs is. My favourite thing that he's been in is um, the OA. Have you seen that? Oh, oh, hey! It's fantastic. Um, it's a shame that they stopped making that. It was, uh, it was great. Uh, check it out. Uh, let's see now there was a question which I was never able to fully answer this question have Hugh Grant and Marty Pello met have they met I don't know I mean I only did a basic amount of research and did like a search on Google Images and tried to see if there was a picture of Hugh Grant and Marty Pello together maybe such a picture does exist if they have met but you know, maybe they've met and nobody took their picture at the time. I don't know. You know, but Hugh Grant was in the film Four Weddings and a Funeral and uh, Marty Pello sang the song that was a big hit off the back of the film. But why would they, why would they meet, though? Because, you know, the, the song was recorded in a recording studio and the film was recorded as a film, you know. So the two things are entirely separate. But, you know, maybe maybe Marty went to the, went to the premiere of the movie so <laughs> I've, I've said i've made this joke before on the, on the, uh, on the podcast but it's a, very odd isn't it this whole film premiere thing it's essentially you're just going to watch a film that you were in it's, it's, it's such an arrogant thing to do isn't it um <laughs> it's weird isn't it the movie premieres odd it's an odd little um c- ceremonial uh, ne- never quite understood what they're for. I, I, well, obviously, I, I understand what they're for. They're to promote the film. But um, the idea of the people who were in the film going to sit down and watch the film that they were in. Really self-indulgent, isn't it, that? <laughs> it is. It's, 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 
I don't necessarily know whether they do anything to like, increase ticket sales for the actual film. What does the premiere do for that? doesn't do anything for it, does it? It's, I mean, I suppose it's like it's a photo opportunity for them to, I don't know, like appear a in the media attending the premiere. But there's so many films come out. I mean, do film premieres really get reported on in that way? I don't know. I mean, I don't really read tabloids or anything so I don't know what what they make of all of this seems like a, a waste of time really having all the people involved in the film go and watch the film and get all dressed up and red carpet and all that did they have a red carpet for a film premiere or is that just award shows when do they <laughs> I'm intrigued I'm intrigued by this do they have just type in into the Googles. Do they have a red carpet for film premieres? <laughs> Let's see what they Join the stars on the official red carpet for the launch of the latest films. Oh, okay, um, that's the first thing that came up. Some advert. So I guess that I guess they do. Uh, <laughs> People also ask, how do you get into the red carpet premiere? Right, there's, there's a whole guide about how to how to kind of blag your way in to a red carpet premiere. So, yeah, apparently they do have red carpets at, at, at movie premieres. You hear the siren? You hear the siren there? There we go. Fire engine, if you're wondering. Can you tell the difference between a fire engine siren and an ambulance siren? and a police siren. Do they all have the same sirens? Or, um, I don't know. Getting sidetracked. Um, so we're yet to conclude whether or not Hugh Grant and Marty Pello have met in person. It, Hugh Grant, if you're listening, or Marty, if you're listening, Marty, I apologise for butchering your accent, mate. Um, I was just doing it for a laugh. And uh, Hugh, um, I apologise for... Uh, <laughs> I have I haven't really made fun of you actually, Hugh. So uh, I could have done, but I didn't. If if either of you are listening, then just get in touch and let me know if you've met. Maybe you're maybe you're great friends and you're listening to this together. Um, maybe you've heard that you're both appearing in the in the same episode of the Ragbag Podcast, and you just wanted to have a little listening party, the two of you. Yeah, maybe you're top buddies. Uh, is a reference to Punch and Judy? don't know whether international viewers know what Punch and Judy is. I, I, guess, I guess that you do. I guess Punch and Judy is an international thing. I, I don't know whether there were kind of Punch and Judy shows in other countries beside Britain, but I think it's it's uh, such kind of a, a an old school sort of British institution that people in other countries will have heard of, of uh, Punch and Judy. It's basically a puppet show where a, kind of a a man beats up his wife, <laughs> isn't it? I, th I think that's what it's about. Um, it's very odd, isn't it, Punch and Judy? It's uh, you don't really see it anymore. Um, it's rather politically incorrect. Is that what? It, am I am I misremembering that? Did did Punch actually beat Judy up? His name was Punch, wasn't he? Uh, he was a bit of a wrongun, but I think he. If mostly he used to beat up the police officer, uh, there was a police officer who used to come along. With a, was there a string of sausages involved as well? Sausages. String of sausages, police officer, 
and uh, Punch just used to kind of pop up and kind of beat the living daylights out of the police officer and then <laughs> it's all in the name of slapstick and good taste. It's the uh, Lightning Seeds song <laughs> from the 90s called Punch and Judy and it was about an incident of domestic violence. I, th I don't think that has dated very well, that song. Very, it's a bit odd, um, that, because uh, Lightning Seeds are really kind of light-hearted, very kind of light-hearted uh, pop music. Great great stuff as well. I mean, I really, really liked um, the Lightning Seeds back in the day. And I, <laughs> the first novel that I wrote, which uh, no one will ever read, I was a teenager, and I wrote, wrote this book. Um, it was pretty good, and there was a lot... There's lots of really kind of um, arbitrary references to the lightning seeds uh, for no apparent reason. Um, <laughs> I used to try and sneak in like lightning seeds lyrics. Into, uh, it's a wonder it never got published. That, um, <laughs> but yeah, Punch and Judy. It's from the um, the album with the strawberry on the front, whichever album that was, and. Uh, it's of its time, I think. It was of its time. I, d I don't think he did a particularly uh, great job with that song. So, uh, yeah, I remember the last line of the song was, um, I didn't have the patience, Punch and Judy do. It seems to take a very sympathetic point of view to the guy who's doing the punching, which uh, probably was not a great idea. Uh, unless I'm reading it wrong. Let's have a look. Let's have a look at the lyrics. Baby's eyes are black. She's taken all the clothes. She's never coming back. The yes turned into no. Oh, you know you made a fool of everyone. Turn around and take a bow, but everyone's gone. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Also, there's a reference to Sigmund Freud. We all know who Sigmund Freud is. And I think that's, that, that's your lot, mate. That's your lot. Have a load of that. Should we do cliche of the week? I can't actually think of a cliche this week, but I'm not even releasing the thing weekly, so it's a bit of a misnomer, that one. What should we talk about instead? What's going on? Uh, podcasting. I'm hoping to start doing the I Like the Sound podcast again. As soon as I've recorded all of these footnotes bit for this uh, Ragbag Presents thing, I'm going to dive back into doing I Like The Sound, which is uh, this is a great podcast. It's a shame that I had to take a extended break from it, but there you go. I mean, you take on too many things, then that's what happens, isn't it? You have to drop some of them for a while. There you go. You know, I've, I've had, yeah, I've had things going on um, outside of the creative world, believe it or not. So I've, I've had to deal with things going on outside of the creative world. I won't go into the details. I've just had to do some stuff, you know what I mean? None of your business, pal. <laughs> Why bring it up then, Frank? Why bring it up? Let's uh, let's see what podcasts I'm listening to in addition to my own one. A lot of uh, a lot of non-fiction, actually. I'm a big um, non-fiction guy. I think probably most of the books that I read now are non-fiction. I try and kind of keep on. I guess sometimes I feel like I'm doing it just for the sake of it. It's kind of reading fiction just to see. Kind of how other fiction writers are doing it, but it's kind of it's not really where my head's at at the moment. I think because of the style of the ragbag books, I think probably reading non-fiction is the right thing to do in this um, set of circumstances. But let's see. Um, there's a podcast called Let's Talk About Sects, 
uh, sects, S-E-C-T-S, you see, let's talk about sects, and um, it's about, uh, basically a, a series about cults, religious cults, uh, it's really great, really uh, such a wealth of information that, that I've uh, discovered from listening to Let's Talk About Sex, there's loads of stuff that I didn't know about, there's a special on David Koresh and stuff like that, but m- m- most of the um, cults that are covered by Let's Talk About Sex are things that I've never heard of before, and yeah, it's um, I'm doing, doing a bit of research as well for the next series of Ragbag Presents, I will say no more than that, but um, I just, it, regardless of whether I'm doing it for research or not, I think it's just been a great experience to, I've listened to uh, a good few of them now, and I, I intend to listen to them all because it's uh, such a fascinating subject, and it's really, really well made. Um, Sarah Steele is the name of the uh, producer. It's an independent podcast as well. It's it's uh, obviously Sarah Steele. Uh, it's her passion project, I guess you can call it. Maybe, maybe she would call it that. Maybe she would call it something else. I don't know, but um, uh, she's great and uh, absolutely brilliant. Can't recommend that highly enough. Have I mentioned this before? Wind of Change, the um, the documentary. This is kind of more of a, a majorly produced thing, and it's kind of uh, I guess would have a lot more listeners than the other one that I just mentioned. But um, it's uh, such a fascinating documentary series about the song "Wind of Change" by the Scorpions, and there's a conspiracy theory that it was either written by the CIA or commissioned by the CIA uh, in order to promote the idea of uh, the Berlin Wall coming down. And uh, I think it was released just before the Berlin Wall came down and then it became like this anthem for for change. Uh, and um, it's uh, absolutely fascinating. And I'm not, I'm not going to say kind of whether or not the the theory is correct. I don't think there actually is. I don't think you could prove it either way. But the, there's compelling... <laughs> the, the, the idea that, that this happened is a compelling idea. But it's just kind of... If you're interested in kind of the, the geopolitics of the time and the music of the, of, the, of the time, it's definitely worth checking out. And it's a really well-made show as well. Wind of Change... Oh, and um, the uh, the one that I will recommend, which I, I'm also kind of uh, indulging in quite a lot in between when I'm not listening to Let's Talk About Sex, I li- I'm listening to Ice Coffee, The History of Human Activity in Antarctica, which is not a subject that I would immediately kind of leap towards. Uh, but I can't tell you where I discovered this podcast at all. It's um, very much an independent production as well. It's made by a guy called Matthew Allen MacArthur, who works, I think he's a marine biologist, if I'm right in thinking that, and he works in Antarctica. And um, it's it's kind of written, at the, it's supposedly written and recorded on his coffee break, and uh, this is why it's called Ice Coffee. Again, it's one of those things that it's a subject that I didn't know very much about, and now I feel like I'm becoming an expert in it. You know, just because of the um, the depth of the research and the uh, the passion for the subject by the guy who's making it, it's um, 
yeah, it really is a great thing. And it's, I'm just looking at this, it's been going for uh, going for eight years, and is still still going up to episode 134. But I'm nowhere near I'm nowhere near that yet. I'm still on the ones from a, a few years ago. I'm in the early days, I guess. I've uh, made it up to episode 12. So uh, yeah, I've got a lot. I've got a hell of a way to go to episode 134. But I will make it. Um, I think yeah, I think it's uh, definitely worth checking it out, even if it's a subject that you don't immediately think of as being yeah. I, I want to find out about the history of human activity in Antarctica. Once you get into it, you kind of uh, yeah. This is my this is my subject now. This is what I want to know about. So yeah, some uh, some podcast recommendations for you there. Why not? Um, yep. Yeah, uh, but uh, that's <laughs> this this is how I end. <laughs> I just did my little thing that where I where I end phone calls. Um, when I'm getting towards the end of a phone call, I just go yep. <laughs> so. <laughs> do you do this? Do you do this, listeners? Do you uh, do you have a, a way of a, like a noise that you make signifying it's the end of the conversation? <laughs> With me, I just go, "Yep." So uh, I'll see you later. <laughs> yep. Where have I got that from? Why do I why do I say "Yep"? <laughs> why do I do that? Well, you know, everyone's got their own little conversational bits and bobs, don't they? And that that just happens to be mine. So there you go. I will see you next time.